Our message this evening on uh, July 1st, my daughter's birthday, 2015, is called Tribal Knowledge. And uh, I want to start with 2 Timothy 2 in verse 4. So when you get there, say there. 2 Timothy 2.4 says, No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. When it is wartime, communications become important. There's propaganda campaigns. Sometimes one nation will send out false broadcast to define another or to deceive another nation. During the time that we live in, kingdom is clashing against kingdom. The brother prophesied about that during the worship service today. We can feel it. I want to tell you that this is the time to tune your ears to your commanding officer's voice. This is the time to learn to hear the voice of the Lord. If we are soldiers of Jesus Christ, then we have to carry out His commands. In Deuteronomy 30, in verse 6, you hear a call to ancient Israel. You hear a cry that goes out to ancient Israel. And it's about the condition not of their bodies, but of their hearts. Israel carried a covenant of circumcision, but God applied those words in a different way in Deuteronomy 30 in verse 6. He said, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and live. This is a time period when we need to cut away things from our hearts that don't belong. We need to get on our faces before God and ask Him, Mighty One, is there any displeasing way in me? Holy One, have I left undone something that You've told me to do? Lord, I want You to be proud of me. And we need to be careful not to accept someone else's affirmation as the same as the Lord's affirmation. Friends, when God speaks to you, it changes everything. How many of you are hungry for the Word of God? It's easy to say that in church. And in this group, it's a popular thing to say. How hungry you are for the Word of God will will really be reflected in the amount of time you spend seeking His Word. Seeking Him. If this week you have not opened your Bible unless you were prompted by someone else, I want to tell you that is a starvation diet. In wartime, you need heavenly calories. You're going to have to raise your caloric intake of the Holy Ghost. You're going to have to because the times are growing dim. No longer will the battles be fought from the pulpits. From here on out, you will have to take messages that you heard yourself and are standing on from God and take them to the city streets and squares. We are going to return to a first century kind of Christianity. Do you know that it was so bad in the first four centuries and so good at the same time? That this is where we get that ancient symbol of the fish from? Christians had to find secret ways to identify with each other because to be known publicly as a Christian was to have a death sentence. They weren't shying away from death at all. They were just trying to spend their lives well in the service of God. There are difficult times ahead of us. 
And the most difficult part about it is that while America has been gospel-soaked, while we have Bibles in every translation, you can find Bibles for teens, Bibles for old ladies, Bible for people who don't listen and for those that do. You can find a Bible for every occasion in every color, even a rainbow Bible. You remember that one, Matthew? We've not been prepared for adversity because our pulpits have told us it's not happening. They said the same thing before the Babylonian captivity. They said the same thing before the Assyrian invasion. And no doubt they were saying the same thing when Titus showed up and laid siege to Jerusalem. I'm telling you that we will have to adopt a wartime mentality. Aggressively loving the unlovable and hearing from our king. In Ezekiel 36, I want you to hear this promise. It's Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 26. Say there when you were there. And in the name of Jesus, you will speak to me today. You, you cannot just sit there. One of you is there. Two of you. I'm going to count you off. How about back left in the room? Y'all there yet? All right. Timothy, you there? You're smiling awful bright today. <laughs> in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The promise of the king of Israel, the promise of the supreme being, was that he would change our heart's condition. He would give us a heart that was receptive to the imprinting of his character, the imprinting of his law, that he would put his spirit in us, and that spirit would move us to do the things that God requires of us. Can you say, fill me up, Lord? We might have to hollow out some things to get filled up with some things. We might have spent too much time filling our hearts with things that don't matter and giving our hearts away one piece at a time to things that are irrelevant. But in wartime, you eliminate the superfluous. Cruise liners become warships. Church, we're going to have to tune it up a little bit because it's now important. Come on, look at your neighbor and say it's important. I've been telling my closest friends that I have this reoccurring vision and it's of a steel spike and a sledgehammer is hitting it and it is going into the ground deeply. It's hard, hard ground. And a flood is coming in the distance. And the people that I love the most are grabbing on to that steel spike and we're holding on to it, and we're bracing, and you can tell. We're grabbing each other's arms. We're locking around it because the flood is coming, and as it is approaching, there's an awful lot more force being exerted on us than we thought. And the flood of dissipation is carrying away people that were meant to stand with us. Now, the truth is I've seen that for years, but it's never been any more true than it is today. This is the time period when we're going to have to get familiar with our king's voice. 
You may be familiar with your pastor's voice. You may be familiar with your favorite Bible study teacher's voice. Maybe you love to listen to people on the radio, and I'm not diminishing any of that. But let's not substitute anything for your own ability to hear from the King of Kings. We as Protestants must not reinstitute a papal chain between us and the kingdom of God. We cannot put links in that chain. You have the right to hear from God. Come on, somebody say, I have a right to hear from God. Jesus Christ died so that you, yourself, could hear from God. You would not have to go and ask your neighbor to hear from God for you. You would not have to go find Elijah in a harpist. You would be able to ask him yourself. This doesn't diminish the role of the fivefold ministry. They're there to help you, to point you in that direction, but never to replace that for you. We need to hear from the living God. Ecclesiastes, the fifth chapter, and the first verse is an unusual one. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Say sacrifice of fools. Who do not know that they do wrong. It is possible to go to the temple and to offer sacrifices and be doing wrong because our hearts have not been circumcised. Our ears have not been circumcised and we don't know what God wants of us. We just know what men say He wants of us. Oh, man, man, man. You know, my whole life changed in a moment when the king spoke to me. I had heard thousands of messages before that. I had memorized hundreds of verses before that. And I was damned as a monstrous sinner in the hands of God. But the moment that He spoke to me, everything changed. It was a way of wiping the slate clean. I knew one moment, one thing in that moment. I was absolutely on the wrong side of everything. And everything about my life had to change that moment. And I was powerless to do it. That's a great place to start, friends. If you eliminated everything that you knew about God that you acquired through second-hand information, how much would you know about God? When we talk about the glory of King Jesus, how much of His glory have you personally gone after, sought out, and had revealed to you? When we talk about your revelation into the Word, how much of it came to you from Him? It is so easy to sit back and eat other people's seconds. And they may be blessed well enough, and they may be trying to bless you. I'm trying to do it tonight. But don't you know, that when He speaks to you, He speaks to you in a way that nobody else can. I'll take one word from Jesus Christ over 10,000 from those who love Him and 10 billion who don't. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is precious. You have a right to hear from God. Nobody can take that away from you. Location doesn't define it. Your circumstances don't define it. In fact, the more desperate you are, the more likely He is to speak in spite of you. Oh, church, that we could hear from Him. This verse says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen. 
This raises the question, listen to whom? There's a danger of simply listening to preaching and believing that that's enough. You may become familiar with what a man teaches, but not the God that he is teaching about. I know more people that have insulated themselves with the doctrine of the church. They can rattle it off. It's their own little defense mechanism. Are you born again? Yes, I believe. It's like scripture kung fu right there. Well, you may say you believe all of those things, but have you had the regenerating work of the Holy Ghost in your life? I'm certain that demons in hell believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm certain that they can say it. I'm also certain that it's not true about their lives when they say that he's Lord. There's a brother used to wear a shirt in this church said five out of five demons believe Jesus is Lord. It's true. The book of James gives us that inference. Unfortunately, he's not here today. Understand, this is a life and death battle. And sometimes you can get so confused in the fog of war that all you have left is what he said to you. Is there anybody in here that but for the grace of God you would have fallen away? I gave up on humanity. I fell on my face and said, Lord, I love you and I don't like your people very much. Lord, I love you and I don't don't have the first clue what's going on here. Lord, I love you and if you hadn't spoke to me, I'd be dead, but you spoke to me. Will you speak to me again? And he did. Monday night I was preaching about the patriarch Jacob or teaching or whatever we do in our home. Whatever we can cram into three or four hours. Seven times in the man's life God spoke to him. Of all the patriarchs, he was in the trouble the most. Of all the patriarchs, he caused most of the own trouble in his life. But the Lord never failed to speak to him. This was before Pentecost. Church, we can hear from the living God. Don't let anybody steal your confidence. Lay open your Bible. More importantly, lay open your heart. Shut out everything else and say, Lord, would you speak to me? I dare you to spend two hours before Sunday, just two, where you have no phone, you have no TV, you have no interruption, nothing. You sit just with your king. If he gives you the most popular literature of our day, if he drops a book in your lap that tells you how wonderful you are, I'll be shocked. The words that he always speaks to me are about what I should be doing for him and what I can no longer do to serve myself. And oh, when you've heard from him. Anybody could use their purpose renewed tonight. We're going to get to a place where we take communion and the difference between taking communion and it just being crackers and Wine, and for some of you, grape juice, or it being a divine experience is the condition of your heart. The crackers won't change. We, we spend three or four bucks on them, you know? Nothing special about them. The wine's not even good wine. As a church, it's a bit awkward to go buy really good wine, you know? It's for communion, I promise. <laughs> What makes this beautiful is when it is a genuine reconnection with your king. And it becomes disgusting 
when it's a vain ritual. I want to tell you that we have a habit. I have a habit. Let's start with me, then we'll work towards you. Of letting the urgent get in the way of the important. Sometimes I, I'm learning to simply say to people that can wait, you're going to have to wait. I'm in conference with the king. You're going to have to wait. I haven't finished the first thing you told me to do, so I can't handle the fifth thing you just told me to do. Church, this is a time period where we're going to have to dial in our hearts because the old, traditional, stale, 300-year-old revelation is not going to work in the days to come. We had a prophecy about a flood of darkness. I believe it was God. Something else rises up in my heart, though, and I hope it will rise up in yours. It's not the first time the world's been covered in darkness. Not the first time a specific city's been covered in darkness. And when it was dark in Egypt, what was it in Goshen? And when it was dark over the whole face of the deep, what did God do? He spoke his light. You know what we need? We need a spoken word from God. You have his written word in your lap, and I love it. I'd never diminish it. I bet I love it more than you. But there's no substitute for when that word is spoken to you personally. Anybody appreciate the difference between saying, by his stripes we've been healed, and having him say to you, I heal you by my stripes? Anybody appreciate the difference between saying, God raises the dead, and him speaking to you and saying, raise that dead person? We accept the word in a general sense, and it's always true. But when he speaks to you, it becomes so much better. Go with me to Isaiah 29. Say there when you're there. The Lord says, 29.13. Isn't that a great phrase? The Lord says... Aren't you glad that Isaiah sought fresh words from God? Isaiah's got 66 chapters just like your Bible. 66. 66 chapters full of the Lord said. Do you know more than 26 times in the word, uh, in the Older Testament alone, it says, then the word of the Lord came. (laughs) You look at what precedes that sentence and it's always trouble. They were always in trouble, but then the word of the Lord came. You're right now in Isaiah and stay there. Just hear me as I'm speaking to you. If you've got to look away from the screen or away from your Bible to get it, get it. You want to know the very first time the Bible says, then the word of the Lord came? It's Genesis 15, 4. Abraham had just blown it. He'd just blown it in a couple ways. Egypt, warfare, all kind of things. Then the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. He said, I'm your shield, I'm your very great reward. The word of God in a vision. Friends, if you can see the word of God, what's his name? Jesus. Came to him in a vision, and he believed what he said to him personally. And it was credited to him as righteousness. It's Genesis 15, 6. I want you to understand that reading the word and accepting the word is not the same thing as having him speak the word to you and you taking your stand on it. When you take your stand on it, he credits you with righteousness. 
Abraham had an experience with God. Oh, I want you to have an experience with the king and not just one, many, many. I, I don't want a week to go by where you're not hearing from the king because I don't think any of us have heard so much from him that we never need to hear from him again. Isaiah 29 and 13, the Lord said, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. The Septuagint in this very verse, the Greek version of this text, simply says, They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. It's another way to say, their worship is utterly worthless because they're just doing what someone told them to do. There's no relationship in it at all. Girls, how would you feel if your guy showed up at the door and he spoke to you poetry? Then he put you in a car and they drove to your favorite place and you had maybe your favorite meal and some of your favorite activities. And then you found out later that evening that the only reason he did it was because your father called him and said, if you don't do these things, I'm going to pull your arms and legs off and beat you with the bloody ends. How'd you feel about that? Did that steal some of the romance for you? Well, what do you think it is when we show up at church and we believe what we're supposed to believe and we do what we're supposed to do within reason simply because somebody told us to and we would like not to go to hell? That's not a relationship. That's not a vibrant love affair. That's not eagerness to carry out the will of the Lord. I want intimacy with my king. More than that, he wants that with you. He does. There's so many things that steal it. The most important thing that steals from you is when he's already said something to you that you refuse to do. You rationalize it away. You talk about it any way that you can to make it okay to not do what he's told you to do. When people get the revelation that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is real and then they back away from it, they never move any further in their faith. When they come to a place where they go, oh yes, all of the gifts are real, but probably just not for me. They never move any forward, further forward in their faith. When the Lord tells you to do something... It's not optional. Perhaps this is one of the reasons people don't seek him for a fresh word more. Because the more that he speaks to you, the more it becomes required of you. If your worship is simply rules taught by men, then points of doctrine become our interest. We end up making lists of things that we don't. If your list of things that you don't is what defines you as a Christian, how are you distinct from Mormons? How are you distinct from Jehovah's Witness? This is not Christianity. This is rules. When your religion is made up of simply things that you've heard from men, you don't have a choice but to focus on distinctives within the body instead of distinctives outside of the body. Listen to what I mean by that. When it's rules taught by men, we say, well, Pastor Sutherland teaches, but Pastor Piro teaches. Of course, when you're in a relationship with the living God, those distinctions are not important. What becomes important is we as the body do this, but the world does that. 
You want to see what is a man-focused religion? Look at how proud we are of distinctives within the body. You know, I've gotten really to the place where I'm like, hmm, that's good, that works for you? Okay, well, you do grape juice and I'll do wine, whatever. That, that's, that's where your heart is, fine. That, those distinctions are no longer important. It's simply, what has God said? And can we do it? That's, that's what becomes important. Somebody say amen in the house. I want to tell you that my heart is burdened because I don't want to lose anymore. At the end of this, I'm going to make it because it's up to me. Say, so what do you mean, Eric? It's up to the grace of God. Yeah, and I know where it's at and I know how to get it. Teaches me to say no to ungodliness. It's not mystical that some people fall away. You know what? It is up to us. Those who hunger and thirst, those are the ones that get filled. It's up to us. I want to hunger for him. Is anybody excited the new Star Wars movie's coming out in December? I got genuinely excited about it. Is that ridiculous? I'm excited about a movie that's going to come out. What excites you? Hearing a good sermon, maybe? I don't know. Not usually on Wednesdays, right, Way? How excited would you be if you got a phone call from Jesus Christ? I've walked into pastor's offices and had pictures of them and U.S. presidents on their wall. They were so proud of those things. God bless them. I hope that was good for them. You know what I'm proud of? I'm proud that the King of Kings visits me in my little study in my house. I'm proud that the King of Kings doesn't overlook the lowly and the broken that know that they're lowly and broken. I'm proud of that. I'm proud to serve a God that has not just passed us by. I want to have pride in the King rather than pride in the King's men. Can you say amen to that? Pride in the king, not pride in the king's men. Turn with me to Mark 7. Jesus actually comments on this verse from Isaiah. He makes a real-life practical application with the religious leaders in his day. Mark 7 in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Is there anybody here that's going to say that's truly a bad idea? I mean, if you're in first century Israel, I bet you'd want some hand sanitizer. You know how I know that? I've been on missions trips with you. We got no water, but we have 60 ounces of hand sanitizer. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? 
He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. How many of you would like Jesus for your pastor? As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. When we focus on the things that men teach, rather than focusing on the heart of God, the character of God, the revealed word of God, it is possible to suddenly miss the point. Was it wrong for them to teach people to wash their hands? No, probably not. Was it wrong for them to make that a distinctive that misses the point of the heart of God? Yes, and if you think they're the only ones that did it, Have you guys visited any churches lately? There's a brother who was helping me with some financial matters in this congregation. And it turns out that there's a particular denomination that's really good with financial matters. So we, we wrote to them. And they separated out a third party out of their denomination to manage pastors, finances, retirements, all kind of things. They didn't want a financial statement from us. They didn't want a credit report from us. You know what the singular most important distinctive was to them? They needed to know that when we baptize people, the water actually closes over their head. And we couldn't move forward without that statement. We're not distracted in the body of Christ, are we? Do you know for sure that the Ethiopian eunuch that the water closed over his head? And if you do, how? We baptize by submersion in this church. We baptize in a horse trough out by the road for the whole world to see it. We don't baptize people if they didn't invite everybody they know. And we apply what we affectionately call the Barbie test. One of the little girls wanted to be baptized. I said, are you willing to give up your Barbies? Maybe her mama said it. I don't remember exactly how we got the Barbie test. That's how traditions work. She wasn't, and so they didn't let her get baptized. Then she come into the room late in the evening and said, I'm ready to give up my Barbies. I want to serve Jesus. Of course, her mama gave her back her Barbies. But if you're not willing to give up what is precious to you, then Jesus is not the most precious to you. The reason that I'm telling you these things is it's easy to get sidetracked. How would you know if what is being presented is correct? if you're not carefully searching the Word and listening to the voice of the Spirit for personal revelation? Is it possible to cling to a tradition that stands opposed to what the Lord's telling you to do in that moment? Is it possible that what God told your grandfather was for your grandfather and that the world's changed slightly, God's righteous imperatives have never changed, but maybe your granddaddy wasn't supposed to dance? Maybe because if he went somewhere to dance... It was somewhere that was not a nice place. But you dancing with your wife in your living room before the presence of the Lord, maybe it's not such a bad thing. Let's consider a couple of these. Think on these two examples. How about Matthew 16? This is a chapter that's preached on very often. Starting in the 21st verse, say there when you were there. <clears throat> Matthew 16 in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must, say must, must. 
must go to Jerusalem and suffer. <laughs> must go to Jerusalem and suffer. How about that? Many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of... Is it an ignoble desire, a bad desire to want to protect your friend? Just a handful of verses before this, he's declared that Jesus is the Son of God. But apparently he also had at least a fair understanding already worked out of what he thought the Son of God ought to do and ought not to do. It is so easy to hear teachings about the presence of God, teachings about the Word of God, teachings about the great doctrines of the Bible. You carry with it your own conceptions and the man that taught them to you. But that doesn't make them right. What has God affirmed for you personally? Peter had a conviction here that was wrong. He's standing against the crucifixion because it conflicts with what he thinks the Messiah is supposed to do. Jesus rebuked him for having on his mind the things of men. Does this mean you shouldn't listen to men? No, it's, it's an and in both situation that Pastor Sutherland likes to preach about. You should, but that's not a substitute for you hearing from God yourself. How about in Acts 10? Think of this one. Acts 10, verse 11. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. Peter replied, Oh, listen to this. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Taco Bell didn't exist in the first century. <laughs> the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Guys, men are the wrong identifier of sin. We're, we're not the litmus test. The Lord is. So, well, that vision wasn't even really about food. It was about men. But he used food, didn't he? What difference does it make? The point is, the common teaching of the day was that Messiah would not be crucified. The common teaching of the day was that Jews do not associate with Gentiles and they were both wrong. In the first example, Peter was consciously opposed to the crucifixion. In the second, the inclusion of Gentile believers in the faith. Both issues are revealed in the Word, but were contradicted in commonly held traditions of the day. It was Jesus' living, active voice that brought clarity to the issue. Listen, we can say the word says it and that settles it. <laughs> I'll give you some scriptures in a minute and we'll see whether it settles it. It's when that word becomes alive to you that it settles it. How about Jeremiah 23, starting in verse... 21, say there when you're there, 
Come on, youth group. Y'all getting there? Come on, somebody say there when you're there. Gabe beat y'all there. Where are the rest of you? Sid, you're there? Well, speak. Speak, darling. Here, come here. Speak right into my chest. Say, I'm there. I'm there. Okay. See, even our little girls can do it. Did you make it, Jen? Come on now. Jeremiah hadn't moved. <laughs> Jeremiah 23, verse 21. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would not have proclaimed my words to my people. I'm sorry, I misread that. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. If that was true in Jeremiah's day, everybody's sure there's false prophets in the church, but everybody's sure that they're somewhere else in somebody else's church. I want to tell you tribal, tribal knowledge is a real threat to the kingdom. I hear more statements, even in our church, of, well, it says something like, or doesn't it say in the Bible, or you know the Bible says, and I'm wondering whether I'm the only guy in the room that knows that it doesn't say. You know, when we disciple people, we stop them in their tracks every time they say the Bible says, even if we know that the Bible says it, we say, where? We make them find it. We make them find it over and over and over until they're almost exasperated with it because they learn their Bibles. It is not enough to get close with our scriptures. We have more scriptures that have been turned on their head. Money is the root of all evil, really? It's not the love of money? We have more scriptures that are not really scriptures. Cleanliness next to godliness. God helps those that help themselves. And they float around in the church. This is because... We're listening to men. We're not in touch with God. Have you ever read about the Berean church? It's actually a city. They became a church. They searched the word to see if what Paul and Silas told them was true. You can read about that in the latter chapters of Acts. Who knows what the sermon title was Sunday? Social with Sodom. How many of you went home and looked up those scriptures? Anybody commit them to memory? Anybody write them down? Anybody get a chance to use them this week? We're not practicing for no reason. How about that double negative? We are practicing for a purpose. What we're doing in here is so that we can perform something out there. We're doing our very best to hear from God and deliver something into your hands of worth. But... It becomes worthless if you haven't heard from God and put it into practice. I love you. Out of all the people that God could have brought in this place, he brought you here. Most of you came here at a cost. You know, it's not popular with everybody's family to meet in a warehouse with those kind of Christians. By those, we mean the kind that love Jesus a whole lot more than you. Edgy pastors, not exactly fluffy words. But the truth is that if we fall short of doing the word of God and we stop only at hearing 
what people are preaching as the Word of God. How will we affect this generation? People are born again when they're put on a collision course with the truth of God's spoken Word. We live in a day when false prophets abound and most assume if a scripture is quoted that it is the Lord and is correct. This is a dangerous assumption because it's often quoted incorrectly either in content or in personal application. All around us, people are distorting the concepts of love, holiness, prosperity, and healing. Even when reading a specific passage, we need to know that that passage is living and active in our situation. Romans 10, 17 says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. If you prefer King James, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You cannot put your faith in something that has not been personally revealed to you. That's not biblical faith. Preaching about someone else's Jesus. Preaching about someone else's experience. Clinging to what other people say is true is not the same as having truth revealed to you. So I'm going to ask you again, if we took out a white sheet of paper and you wrote down only the things that God had personally revealed to you, could you fill up the sheet of paper? Friends, this meeting is supposed to be the icing on the cake, not the substance of the cake itself. We are supposed to be adding something to you, but you're supposed to be building it every day. Have we gotten lazy in our faith because this is wartime? Our public officials are standing up and proclaiming things that are an abomination in the eyes of God. And the church has been so impotent in its answer that we've confused the issue and act like we do not love homosexual people. I would love to fill this congregation, every single remaining seat, with gay, lesbian, confused dogs that think they're cats. I don't care because I know that the Word of God will change them. What I will never do is pretend that it's okay or that it's right. The way that you know that you need to be saved is when you're first condemned as a monstrous sinner and when He has actually saved you, not some guy put a USDA stamp on your head at the altar, but when He has done a work from the highest heaven in the depths of your soul. You know it. I think we're actually condemning people to hell by declaring them saved before God has. God begins to move on the heart and we say, hey, you pray this little prayer after me. Who told you to do it? Why do you do that? Where did you get that out of the Bible? When did God speak to you and say, oh, that's right. We were just taught to do it. You know, nobody had to lead me in a prayer of salvation. I bet if you were about to be executed, nobody would have to lead you in a plea for, for uh, clemency either. You know? But if we put a gun to your head right now, you wouldn't need to have a, a typed out prayer that said, Lord, save me. I bet it'd just come right out of your spirit because it's authentically what was happening in you. Maybe the reason we need choreographed prayer is because it's not actually happening in their hearts. 
Oh man, when you're born again, you can't even hide it. The Bible is always true, but when it's Christ's word to you, when it becomes personally applicable, when it becomes living, active, real, tangible in your situation, that's when you take your stand upon it. Titus 3.10, I'm going to read you these. Or they'll put them on the screen. I, I want you to, to just interact with this concept. Titus 3.10 says, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Would you have one family member left if you did that? <laughs> is the context important? Of course it is. Is the audience important? Of course it is. It, context is that we're arguing with people in a public fashion about genealogies. But that's neither here nor there. If you are in a situation and God's Spirit breathes this verse to you, if He says, Justin, warn a divisive person once, then twice, then have nothing to do with them. Even if you're not talking about genealogies with that person, suddenly that's God's Word to you. Do you understand the difference? One is very general. What do I do with this? The other is spoken to you in that moment. We need it. When the Holy Ghost brings to you a scripture that's applicable to your situation, it's like handing a man ammunition at wartime. But just knowing that those scriptures are there are like having the ammunition in the armory somewhere, but not in your hands. We have to personally interact with this. How about this one? Luke 11, 9 through 10. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Say the words true. The word's true. Okay, have you ever lost anything? Yes, you really have. But the word's true. I thought if you seek, you find. Is context important? Of course. Is the audience important? Of course. We happen to be speaking specifically about the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven thirteen says, If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? But my point is, no matter what you're doing, if he speaks that verse to you, suddenly it has life, doesn't it? Maybe you're praying and you don't know the right way to present the gospel to a family member. But the Lord quotes this verse in your head. Suddenly you go, okay, I'm going to keep seeking you until you show me because I know that you will. Not at all what the verse is talking about. But when he spoke it to you, it became what it's talking about. There's a difference between a general word and a word that came to you. Don't settle for the general when you can have an absolutely personal interaction with the king. If you spend enough time around us, we're going to fill you with the scripture. It's what we do. That's not a show for Sunday and Wednesday and Monday and every other night of the week. It's who we are. If we go cut down trees together or go shoot guns together or go light a fire or do something else that you can beat your chest and call yourself a man, if we do anything together, when we move Bob on July 4th at what time in the morning? Nine o'clock in the morning. We will be quoting scripture. It's because it's who we are. But when the Holy Ghost brings that scripture to you, oh, that's a whole different thing.
How about John 13, 27? Build the doctrine out of this one. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly. So do we build the first church of the rapid response? I mean, how does this work? Whatever you do, you do quickly. How many of you know that we need the Holy Ghost to make a word living and active to us? It's not enough to say, well, we simply look at the word or the word says it. Or if you just get the word in its context, it does. Really, the word doesn't address your air, airfare. It doesn't, it doesn't address electricity. It doesn't address modern plumbing. It doesn't address those things. But the Spirit of God will take this ancient word and make it alive to you in this moment. Oh, my life has turned so many times on the spoken word of God. In Matthew 16, 17, a very familiar passage. You should go to this. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. There is a blessing in getting a revelation directly from the king. Now, I love it if Pastor Sutherland shares with me a word or Pastor Pero shares with me a word and it's sweet, but nothing's as sweet as the one that I sought him for and he gave me. I love that I'm around a group of people that hears from God. One of their Agena's favorite little things to do is show me the timestamps in their iPhones. They make notes, and the timestamp says when they made the note. And they very often have the notes for my sermon before I had them. It's beautiful. That's confirmation. It's wonderful. I'm very excited about it, mostly because they hear from God, but I'm not nearly as excited about them hearing from God as when I do. That's not selfish. That's, that's a serious love for the Lord. I love that my wife loves to see other people. I think it's great when she visits her parents. I think it's wonderful if she goes out with Ella and they get their nails done. But I love when she loves to visit with me. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. Are you jealous for the Lord? He's jealous for you. Because we're at war, we may have to strip away some of the silliness that our traditions have taught us. It's time to eliminate that which was not revealed in the Scripture from our dogma. We need the testimony of the spoken word. If you're going to have to die for your faith, it needs to be a faith that God spoke to you, not that God spoke to John Calvin in the 15th century. It needs to be a faith that you have seen personally in the Word and come alive to you in your life, not the one that Huss was burned for, not the one that Luther took his stand for. He said, well, Eric, they're all the same. How do you know if he hasn't spoken it to you? A man burned at the stake in 1380 in Czechoslovakia. Praise God, he ran his race. I bet he heard from God or he wouldn't have endured those flames. Have you? Yeah? Did you ever read about those Jewish sons of Sceva? In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. <laughs> the demon beat up all seven brothers, left them bleeding and naked. I've never rooted for a demon before. I feel guilty for laughing, but I do laugh every time I hear that story. It's not enough to have secondhand knowledge of your king. Yeah? On Facebook right now, everybody's quoting Franklin Graham, Billy Graham, anybody they can find. 
as if you have no thoughts of your own. As if you have no revelation of your own. To the people that know you, let's just suppose that those 2,000 Facebook friends you have were actual friends. Should they admire a distant author? Should they count their word as important? Or if they were your friends, should they care what you personally have to say? Why do you want someone else to say what you should be saying? Could it be that you have no revelation of your own and are riding on others? Oh, church, we cannot be poor in the revelation of God. Colossians 2, 16. This is interesting, Pastor. We haven't even gotten to our text yet. How many of you know what a Rechabite is? Six. Six people. Okay. You're all going to know what a Rechabite is here in a minute. Colossians 2.16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his spiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with his head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. He lost connection with whom? Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. This aesthetic lifestyle, monastic leftovers from the Middle Ages, it comes from a Greek mindset that says, everything that's done in the flesh is unholy, but what's done in the Spirit is holy. The Jews did not believe that. No Jew ever believed that. They didn't pray over their food to clean their food or to bless their food. They prayed to thank God for the food that they had. The early days of creation, he blessed every day and said that it was good. If you can read between these lines, what I'm telling you is that the traditional Christianity that says we are Christians because we don't do anything, that is not going to win this battle that we're in. The king of kings has not made food and drink a matter of the kingdom. It's not do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In fact, it's what you're supposed to do, he says. Do this, do this, do this. Hillel was a teacher in the first century B.C. He actually stretched into the time of Christ's birth. He's actually the man who was first quoted as what we think of as the golden rule. He said, do not do unto another what is harmful to you. Jesus took it and turned it around. Christianity is not about all the do-nots. He said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Christianity is active. It is out there. It hears from God and it goes, it moves, it does. It doesn't sit back passively and say, well, we don't, we don't, we don't. If God told you not to do something, praise God, never. Don't you dare violate it. If he didn't, and you think that that makes you holy, what a ridiculous window dressing you've tried to put on the gospel. 
Do you know that our social norms change all of the time? Sometimes ankles are considered lurid in a culture. Sometimes they're not. I trust mine are not making you sin, right? Church, we're going to have to get in relationship with the Lord. He'll show you what to do. And that's the point. Not, not apart from His Word. He'll do it within His Word. But it takes the Spirit and the Word so that you know how you should live and move. When we lose connection with our head, all that's left is religious rules, teachings, and traditions. You end up fighting battles that aren't even God's and are confident of things that God never said explicitly in His Word or to you personally. You're simply defending your turf. The prophet Samuel said in the first, first Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. I want to tell you that the book of Hebrews in the third chapter says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. I mean, the, the concept here is that you, you have to hear from the Lord. Just reading His Word alone is not enough. How many of you, when you read, stop and say, Lord, what does this say to me now? <laughs> How many of you, when you read and go, oh, my goodness, I know what it says about Him. This Word is a mirror. The thing that you should see in it first is your own life. Your own life. I pray it's speaking to you. I pray He is speaking to you. The group of Rechabites, I'm going to flash some scriptures on your screen here. In Judges 1, 16, what you'll see here is that Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, was called something. The descendant of Moses, the descendants of Moses, father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms. By the way, that's Jericho with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev. Moses' father-in-law was from a group of people everywhere else called Midianites. He was the priest of Midian. Y'all remember that? You can read that in Exodus. And here in Judges, that group of people are called Kenites. What I'm getting at is the man named Jethro, who advised Moses, was full of wisdom. He was also called in the Bible a Kenite. Sometimes there's more than one name for a specific group of people. In Judges 4.17, you see Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Eber, the Kenite, because there, uh, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Eber, the Kenite. Jael is the one that killed Sisera. You all know this? This is Deborah uh, and and uh, Barak go to war against Sisera. Uh, Sisera's chariots get stuck in the mud. He takes off running, and he ends up being killed by Jael, the wife of Eber, a Kenite. In 1 Chronicles 2, 54 through 55, this is going somewhere, the descendants of Salma, Bethlehem, the Nidophathites, the Ataroth Beth Joab, half of the Manahathites, the Zorites, and the clans of the scribes who lived at Jabez, the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, and the Sukathites. These are the Canaanites who came from Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. I read that to you so that you get a link here. The Kenites and the Rechabites are the same people. 
the Canaanites who came from Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. With that in mind, one last scripture of history, and then I'll bring us to a point. 2 Kings 10. How many of you know who crazy Jehu is? Some of you drive just like him. After he left there, he came upon Jehoinadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Jehu greeted him and said, Are you in accord with me as I am with you? I am, Jehoinadab answered. If so, said Jehu, give me your hand. So he did, and Jehu helped him up into the chariot. This Jehonadab, who later his name is going to be shortened, is a son of Rechab. Rechab is a Kenite. So that entire string of scriptures was to say this. The father-in-law of Moses is a Kenite, also called the Rechabite. Uh, he was wise. The woman who killed Sisera, Jael, is a Kenite, a Rechabite. They're interchangeable words, a faithful warrior. Jehoanadab, he, uh, he fought with Jehu. He cleansed the kingdom and was righteous. Is that a good pedigree? I would say that's a good pedigree. Now let's go to Jeremiah 35 together. Jeremiah 35 is our most extensive teaching on the Rechabites, and I think this is a pretty sound word for this time. Starting in verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them grape juice to drink. So I went to Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habizaniah, <laughs> and his brothers and all of his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord. Say, into the house of the Lord. Into the, house of the, Lord. Into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igaliah, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Messiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the men of the Rechabite family and said to them, drink some wine. Does God entice people to sin? Did Jeremiah entice people to sin? But they replied, we do not drink wine because our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. You know that's not recorded anywhere in Scripture before here? Also, you must never build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. We have obeyed everything our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us, neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in or had vineyards, fields, or crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather, Jonadab, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, we said, 
Come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian and Armenian armies. So we have remained in Jerusalem. Did you catch the but there? Our forefather told us not to do this, so we don't do any of it. But now we're under attack in a whole new way. And so we've come to take refuge in Jerusalem. They're having to change. They're not living as nomads. They're not living in tents. But they're still hanging on to some of the traditions. I'm not saying those traditions are wrong. Jeremiah doesn't say they're wrong. But what does it say? When God tells a prophet, you take them into the house of God and you tell them to do this, and they say, nope, our forefather said not to, so we won't do it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, go and tell the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, will you not learn a lesson and obey my words? Declares the Lord, Jehnodab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine. And this command has been kept. To this day, they do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Again and again, I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you, they said. Each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. I'm sorry, follow. Then you will live in the land I have given to you and your forefathers, but you have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command their forefather gave them, but these people have not obeyed me. He uses them as an object lesson. The Rechabites were willing to obey their forefather and the Israelites were not willing to obey their God. That's an object lesson. But let's not draw from the object lesson that the Rechabites are right. This is not a scenario where the Rechabites have done well and the Israelites have done bad. It's a scenario where nobody is doing right. Do you know why? When God brought them into the house and said, do this, they said, no, our forefathers said not to, so we won't do it. Doesn't that sound a lot like Peter on the roof? No, I've never. But he relented and did. Doesn't that sound a lot like Peter who... uh, right after getting the revelation that the church is built upon, says, no, Lord, you'll never be crucified. But then he understood it was God's will and preached that for the rest of his life. Well, the Rechabites, they get blessed. And they get blessed because (laughs) if we're going to say that neither were right, let's also say this. At least the Rechabites were trying. The Israelites weren't even trying. This is about where we are with traditional Christianity. Most of what is done is simply done because somebody told them to do it, not because they heard from God. And when they do come face to face with the presence of God, they say, no, our forefather said not to, so we don't. But these people have not obeyed me. That's the last part of verse 16. When you hear these people, who do you think that is? You know, the the tendency is to say, oh, well, that's the Israelites. The Rechabites obeyed him, but the Israelites did not. I hope you're not losing me in these complicated phrases. The truth is nobody obeyed him. Some were obeying their forefathers, but nobody was obeying God. You know what's important? That we obey his voice. Now, God goes on and he blesses the Rechabites. 
Because at least they were trying to live up to some standard. And I, I believe he doesn't bless anybody who doesn't repent. So I began looking. For instance, when you see in verse 19, Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Jonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a man served before me. So why did he get blessed like that if nobody was doing what was right? <laughs> Turn with me to Nehemiah. Say there when you're there. You're going to be in the fourth chap third chapter of Nehemiah. In the third chapter of Nehemiah, we have this interesting little phrase. Verse 14. The dung gate was repaired by Malchajah, son of Rechab. Do you remember that the Rechabites, the Kenites, they were the same people group? They were all sons of Rechab. Ruler of the district of Beth Hakiram. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Now that means nothing to you, right? Because nobody in here is a Semitic languages person. Actually, Ibrahim is, kind of. He's working on it. Beth in Hebrew, house. Ha of. Kiram, vineyards. This Rechabite is now in charge of the district of Jerusalem that plants and tends vineyards. I think you can say he left his forefather's advice. And now he's following what the Lord's told him. You know, I related to this so much because I grew up in a dry, dead denomination that taught us we were saved whether we were or not. And when I came face to face with the King of Kings, the biggest decision that I had before me is do I follow my forefathers or do I do what the Lord is telling me to do? My forefathers weren't right and I certainly wasn't right in that moment. But today you could say I'm planting vineyards of a sort. I have so abandoned the tradition of my forefathers in favor of a re relentless, reckless pursuit of the King. John 16, 12 teaches us about the spirit of truth. He's not in contradiction with the word. Jesus said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. You are supposed to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that transcends your loyalty to the men that have gone before us. You understand? Every one of our major denominations, including Assemblies of God and Pentecostal, are monuments to previous men's revelation. I'm not telling you that that revelation was bad. I'm not telling you it was wrong. I'm simply saying if you don't get the same revelation, what difference does it make? We cannot run on yesterday's bread any longer. We're at war. And when you're at war, you can't eat stale bread. My heart's desire for you is that you would hear from God yourself. Obviously, what I teach, I hope, is true and bears witness with you. I'm teaching the things that he revealed to me. 
But if you take it for granted that you get what you need simply by hearing messages from us, no Christian was meant to live like that. Not ever. Do you know who he said this to? The men that he was walking with every day, all day. <laughs> to the men that he was walking with and talking with all day, every day, he still said, you're going to have to hear from the Spirit of God. Isn't that interesting? You know what Sunday service could look like? Sunday service could look like this. It could be that each one, when we came together, had a hymn, a psalm, a prophecy, a revelation. It could be that the congregation had heard from God and the leader's job was only to compare it with the Word and make sure that there was some sense of order so everyone was being edified. Perhaps we could start to have meetings that were not just sit and soak, sit and listen to a sage on a stage. Perhaps you would actually bring the messages yourselves because you had heard from God. That's what church is supposed to be. That's why Corinthians 12 says you can't all prophesy. That's, that's why the gifts of the Spirit exist in the church, not just in church leaders. By the way, while we're on the subject, you go look at every epistle except the ones written from Paul to Timothy. They were addressed in congregations, not even the leaders. They wrote to the people. Not one time did they write to a pastor somewhere. Think about that for a minute. You know what this church will be? It'd be whatever you make it. What, what will happen here will be whatever you are hungry for. We've seen a lot of healings in this last year, hadn't we, Clements? We fought a lot of really, really hard battles. It's deepening people's revelation. What we need now is for every man, woman, and child in the room to be able to get their own. Which begs one more question while you stand to your feet.